the responsibility of leadership during the change is to awaken, really, is to be open to these new concepts and not hold so dearly and so not have a stranglehold on the existing way of doing things. Because as leaders, you need to be adaptable. You need to be able to see change coming and then ride that wave in a graceful way that maintains the structure of your organization, that keeps as many people on the boat as possible. Hello, and welcome to the Veritatos podcast, where we believe that leadership is first and foremost, a spiritual path. My name is Dr. Lauren Borden. I'm a professional certified coach, industrial organizational psychologist, and your host. Together, we'll bridge the divide between the practical and the spiritual, the conscious and the unconscious, and of course, the mind, body, and spirit all to support you in deepening your growth so that you can create the impact in the world that only you can have. It is so good to have you here. Let's get started. So Jesse, you're like, I feel like this is such a this is going to be such a cool conversation because we've been, I feel like so often whenever you'd be like, you and Lindsay would be like on my couch when we lived in New York, it would just, it would turn into a podcasting worthy conversation. (laughs) And it was just like us hanging out, just shooting the shit. So I'm really excited to have you on today. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. It's a pleasure. And you're totally right. Like that's one of my favorite things about having friends and people that I know and connections that are doing amazing things in the world that are well-educated and passionate about the things that they love is like every conversation that I have, I would love to record. And almost every conversation that I have, I would love to record and put out there. And I feel like somebody can generate some kind of value from it. And with you, like with the overlap of our professional pursuits and like organizational psychology, and then spiritual path and, you know, what most people would consider woo-woo, like there's a lot of significant overlap and we're both very passionate and very educated on it. So it's always magic every time we talk. Every time. And what high, that's such high praise too, for like you and the people in your life, how you create it. It's like just taking a moment to realize that every conversation you have is literally podcast worthy and something that you could just like hit record on. And those are the sorts of conversations that you're having all the time. That's really fucking cool. It is. And like, now that I'm thinking about it, that sounded like a pretty arrogant statement. It's like every conversation I have is podcast worthy. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go that far to say, but it definitely is a far cry from the late night, drunken conversations in someone's basement in high school. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it took that, that, um, that desire for connection, that desire for conversation, that desire for esoteric conversations, right? And actually fueled it into something that's useful in the world, or at least interesting in the world. And instead of just being like spinning our wheels as idealistic teenagers. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, and it's it's a one of the thing I heard and what you said is it's like being able to have both generative and connected conversations in your life. Like mm. I, that's really how I hold you and like how I've experienced you. And I haven't like been a fly on the wall for the other conversations we, you have with the people in your life, but that's totally who I know you to be. So 
Well, and you mentioned, and Jesse, you mentioned, you kind of already alluded to like our similar backgrounds and everything, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what are you up, just what are you up to in the world these days? And how does organizational psychology fit into that? (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, I'd love to. So this is probably not the best way to describe it, but the way that I describe it to some people that ask me is I've kind of been a professional juggler for the past couple of years. I joined the military out of high school. I did five years in the Marine Corps. Worked in construction a little bit before that. And then when I got out, I was in union construction for about six years, went to trade school, was an electrician. Well, at the same time, towards the tail end of my electrical career, started going back to school to pursue a degree at the encouragement of my spouse. At the time, I was very young and convinced that college was the largest pyramid scheme in America. Um, and that undeferrable student loan debt. And, you know, I just couldn't get behind it ethically. And I saw anything that I wanted to learn was available on the internet. Like I could read books, I could take courses, I could hire coaches, like I could. And I mean, we kind of get into now where the coaching industry has kind of gotten into. A lot could be said about that being a similar style pyramid scheme as to what I portrayed college as, but without going there. Um, So I was convinced that I was going to be able to make a living for myself, be as educated as I want to be without going to college. My spouse encouraged me otherwise. I was experiencing a lot of depression at my job. I wasn't really feeling fulfilled by the work that I was doing in construction. And I was tired of being the smartest person in the room. Once again, kind of sounds a little arrogant, but like no offense to construction workers, just like they aren't able to hold the most abstract or complex concepts. And, you know, I'm pretty intellectual and pretty heady. So I would get labeled as an outcast pretty quickly on job sites. So Went back to school. The thing that made the most sense was to pursue a project management degree. And when I went into the admissions office, there was a new program that opened up at State College that I was registering at for applied psychology. And I was like, what the heck is applied psychology? Like, I don't even know what that means. So I started looking into it a little bit. I talked with the head of the department and I was like, you know what? Like this, at the time I was reading a lot of psychology books and literature. So It was just interesting enough for me to be like, you know what? I'm going to take a chance on this. Something feels right. I'm going to follow this. And it wasn't until after like my first couple classes that I learned about what industrial organizational psychology was. And then I was like, dude, this is it. This is the thing that it interests me so much. This is the thing that has the most potential to help like change the world in the way that I think I can help. Like this is the arena that I want to throw my sword into. So went a couple semesters there while also working full-time. That was fun. COVID happened. My partner expressed that she wanted to leave Long Island. So we did that. We traveled. We lived on the road for a while. I transitioned away from working primarily with my hands in construction to a coaching model to start help. You know, at first it was a leadership development. Coaching was a pretty broad umbrella. Wasn't really gaining much traction. Eventually I wound up finding my niche was less of one-to-one coaching, even though I very much enjoy those kind of containers. But now I most of my business comes from like building assessments for companies, building employee manuals, like getting hands-on with their process and helping make it sustainable, scalable, and replicatable, essentially. So that's a little bit about myself, the work I'm doing. I'm still working on finishing my undergraduate degree out in California in Los Angeles. At the same time, working on a few rental properties that my family is developing and just have my hands in a lot of pots right now. So I 
am looking to, my goal is with the, at the end of the semester, I'm presenting at an academic symposium in Los Angeles. And I'm hoping with the research proposals that I'm bringing to the symposium to be able to either attract some funding or find myself with some fellowship opportunities to get involved with some research in the field of IO psychology. That's so cool. Well, and I'm I'm like, I love hearing all of that back to back in that way. Because I think when I first met you, I was like, well, because you have this interest in spirituality and then you are also super interested in organizational psychology. And I always, when I met you, I felt like a total alien because I was like, these two things do not go together. And I was like, oh, you're like me. Like you, it, it was very, it was just very, very cool. And I felt very seen in that moment. And, and the thing actually, whenever I think of you, I always also think about how the inception of your interest in leadership, actually, I don't know if this is true, but I always assume that your the inception of your interest in leadership was in when you were in the Marines. And mm-hmm. like, I'm curious about, and I don't know if that's actually true. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm really curious about how like your experience in the Marines impacted how you think about leadership now, because mm-hmm. it's like such a specific form of leadership that you see in the Marines. And yeah, I just, I'm curious. Can you say, I'd love to hear. What yeah, I would love that. to talk about that a little bit. It, without a doubt, influenced the way that I feel about leadership and the way that I think about leadership. I don't know if I would say that it started there, but without going too much into my childhood, like I was definitely always someone who liked to hold people together. I like to love people. I love people, man, like connection, friendships, family, like it's it's very important to me. I wasn't necessarily involved in what you would think traditional leadership roles. Like I wasn't in student government or anything like that or any kind of volunteer organizations. But I definitely, as a even as a young child, like put myself in a position to bring people together. And I don't know if I necessarily took them anywhere, which I guess is the purpose of leadership, but holding people together is something that I've always been passionate about and always felt was very important. In the Marine Corps, Now, that was, you know, hmm. if I say I had like the feelings of a leader before the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps took that, threw it through a meat grinder and a purification process and compressed it into, uh, (laughs) it compressed it into like the, the tactical, the strategy side of leadership, because it's not all about feelings, performance, results, those things are very important when it comes to leading an organization. And the Marine Corps was a wake-up call to the actual burden of leadership, like the calling of leadership. And it's definitely what started me down this professional journey. And I didn't think that, you know, at the time, I didn't realize leadership development was even a viable career option. I didn't think in terms of training and development. I didn't think in terms of psychological assessments and roadmaps and all of these important things that the C-suite spends a lot of money on. I just thought like, hey, this is the way that people come together to create and build things bigger and better than any one person could do on their own. Well, wait, I want to like, the thing that you just said was really interesting too, because the fact that you, thank you so much for providing the additional context from the first part around how it's like that feeling of like holding people together and how you had the experience of, not necessarily labeling that as leadership. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would maybe even go so far, my experience of like my version of that when I was younger is like, oh, well, leadership is that and I'm this. Like, it's sort of like, I'm good at this or I feel drawn to this. And then there's like leadership over here. 
Like mm-hmm. I didn't even hold them together, but like you had this experience of sort of like wanting to hold people. Did you think of it as leadership like that back then? No, I, I definitely didn't think of it as leadership. I was blessed to have a really solid group of friends. We were all very loyal. We were all very dedicated to each other. We were all very open with each other. In our youth, we kind of made the joke that we were always just like one bad decision away from becoming a gang. And <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't think it was that drastic looking back on it now. But, you know, we were definitely a little self-righteous and uh, overestimating of our impact on the world around us in our teenage years. So I remember specifically having a conversation with one of my friends And we were arguing because there was a person in our group that I had assigned like the leadership role to, I guess. And I have not thought about this since then, but this conversation just brought it up in my memory banks. So I'm going to trust that it needs to be communicated. We were arguing about the way that he handled something. And, you know, I had said to him like, well, he leads us. And one of my best friends, Nick, like pushed back on me, like, physically pushed me. And he's like, you really think that he's qualified to lead? Like if anybody, you should be taking these reins. And it was the first time that I had ever attributed anything of what we were doing to some kind of like leadership capacity. Like I was always way more comfortable taking the backseat role, even though it was like foundational and so important to my being to keep everybody together and to keep the ship moving in the same direction, you know? Whoa. Why do you think he reflected that to you? That you were, if anyone should be leading, it should be you. I mean, I could ask him, but what I think looking back was his motivation behind that is either he was doing something similar to me that I was doing to the other person in our group. Like he was projecting that I was actually the one with the plan. Whereas I, cause it wasn't explicit, right? It's a group of teenage friends. We're not actually in some kind of organizational hierarchy. It's just all emotions at that point. And it's all fluid. And, you know, what does leadership even mean at that point? Making sure everyone meets up at Taco Bell at the same time, like making sure that everyone knows to coordinate resources for a party on Friday night. Like it's, you know, it's it's very superficial tasks and responsibilities there. So my assumption is either he was projecting that role onto me the same way I was projecting it onto this other third person, or He saw the potential there for me to be able to do the things myself that I was pushing off onto this other person. And he decided to challenge me into that role of responsibility. Like, hey, stop playing this backseat role. Stop putting it off on other people. Like, you care very passionately about this. I agree with your perspective on things. This person isn't even qualified and there's no structure that says that they're responsible for this. So you take responsibility for it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's such a powerful moment too. Cause it's like also to have that mirror held up, not only in terms of like, I think about one of my teachers often talks about how we're often like, whenever you sit down in like a group setting or you're at, I don't know, you go to breath work or you go to a group meditation or something like we're always looking for someone to start the meeting (laughs) or like, and it's like, who's got it? Who's got the reins? And it's like, you, you've got Mm -hmm. it. And like, first off to have that mirror held up to you, like, Hey, like, don't pawn it off on him. Like it's you. But also the three, one of the reasons I asked the question was because it's like, I sort of wonder the degree to which you were actually seen as a leader, but you didn't, I've never been like identified as a man who's in like a big group of like male <laughs> friends. Like I know that that's a very specific, like a specific experience to have. But from what yeah. I've seen, like in my brother and my friends is that there's often this sort of implicit, like, oh yeah, he's like, there's the person you look to. 
Mm-hmm. And the person you look to, like a lot of that is emo- emotional. A lot of that is instinctive. It's like who feels the most grounded or like he's sort of like most self-assured or or whatever. And then, and oftentimes the person who you don't look to immediately is actually the most qualified to lead because of that instinct of like, wait, hold on. Like the person who's holding things together. And like, that's how you describe how you were at that age, which was, yeah. is, is really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that makes me think about a lot of things. Those kind of social hierarchies are embedded in our social structure, right? Like whether we like it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, whether they're predicated on power, dominance, control, emotions, ability to hold space, competency, like there's a whole spectrum of hierarchies that we subconsciously adjust to when we're interacting in a social space, right? It's just kind of the fabric of how we operate in the world. And, you know, sometimes those things are very bad, like when they lean towards power and dominance, like that tends to devolve into, I mean, at its worst, a totalitarian state. And But there's also a benefit to those social hierarchies in a sense, because it lets us know where we are. Like it it helps us identify in a sense as opposed to the collective. And like, that's not the only identifier, but it's a very important metric to have a pulse on. The other thing that you spoke to about who wants to get this thing started. It's funny. I recently, I read a research paper. I think it's called like the GAB principle. It was a leadership development study that they did. Are you familiar with this or? I'm not actually, no. What is it? So they conducted a study where they had individualized groups and they essentially were, they were trying to measure what the most important metric is for a leader, for an emerging leader amongst a group of peers. The assumption of the researchers was that competency in a subject would be the, the largest identifying factor of what qualified someone as a leader or what made people in the peer group look to that person as a leader, right? In reality, when the research was conducted, everything came out, willingness to initiate the conversation and percentage of time taken up by that person talking resulted in the social group identifying that person as a leader, regardless of competency in the subject. Interesting. Yeah. So I read that study about a year ago, I think, and, you know, it really dawned on me. It's like, okay, well, there's a responsibility in that to speak up. There's a responsibility in that to like overcome that fear response of, oh, well, my opinion doesn't matter, or I need to wait for the invitation, or, you know, like there's a responsibility to say, oh, I am competent in this area. I know what I'm talking about. I'm going to just say something. It doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be the right thing. It doesn't even have to be like the perfect thing. Like, I just need to say something, get the conversation going, and that'll attract attention in a positive direction towards whatever is generative for the group at that time. Oh my gosh. That's such a good sound bite. Well, also <laughs> the reason I was the reason I was chuckling was because I'm like, of course the researchers would be like, well, clearly competence is the thing that matters the most. Because it's, it's like it's like, as a researcher, you're like, there's nothing more important than like knowing your shit, making sure mm-hmm. that it's right. And and I, I get it. I, I think that that's, it's like, that is, I think where most people lean and look is like, do I even know enough to be opening my mouth in this situation? And I actually, it's funny. I haven't told you much about this, the work I've been doing with the, the C-Suite Collective. And y'all, if you're listening, I'm going to have Elena, who's the, the founder of the C-Suite Collective on it on in like two episodes or something. So it's coming. but. It's this, 
I've been working on this team doing like culture change work with all these people. And initially when I signed on to work with them, I sort of said to Elena, who's my the founder, I was like, I was like, hey, I don't operate like a traditional executive coach. And so you should know that before you pull me in because it's like I'm gonna have a very different type of conversation with the client, you know, with your clients. And if you're not down with that, that's cool. But you need to know that ahead of time. And she was like, she sort of laughed and she was like, no, no, trust me. This is like you're with your people. And I ended up on this, we ended went on this retreat and it was the first time we were all in the same room and I was looking around and it was like the first time in my life I've ever had a conversation with a bunch of leaders who didn't only speak from what they knew and their level of competence. Mm. And so many of them were speaking from like what was true for them or from connection or from their intuition. And it mm. was like the things that we created in that experience. It was like the first time that I've been on a team like that, that hasn't been a corporate environment. And it was it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had because for me, what it opened up was like, oh, I don't have to know everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't have to know the answer before I bring something forward to a conversation. And so for the thing that you were speaking to that's so profound is like giving yourself permission to take up space and to step into the role of leader and trusting that even if you don't, have the quote unquote competence or like that there is something that you can draw on. The only time that the lack of competence, I think, becomes an issue, and I'm curious about your perspective on this, is like when you're asserting to know everything and you mm-hmm. don't. Like mm-hmm. you're actually there's actually a misrepresentation of what you know and what you don't, and like an unwillingness to surround yourself with the people who do have the necessary expertise to get around you and to support you and fill your gaps because everyone goes like, oh, they've got it, and like they don't fucking got it. I don't know. Have you <laughs> like what do you, what's your perspective on that? Like in terms yeah. of the importance of competence and like leadership and yeah, what do you think? So what that screams to me is that's a pride issue. That's an arrogance issue, not necessarily a competency issue. I mean, it is a competency issue, but that's like the, that's kind of the remedy, not exactly the root cause. Does that make sense? It's Mm -hmm. like developing one's competency or humbling yourself vulnerably and having the courage to say, you know, I'm not an expert on this and not posturing yourself as that because then that's an ego game. That's like a, I am the end all be all, I know all, everything has to come through me kind of thing. And that's just, I mean, it's not going to work in the long term. Like to take the emotions out of it, to take judgment out of it, like it might work for a certain amount of time. It might get you to a certain level. It might accrue some kind of success, but ultimately you're not going to be able to lead an organization where things rely on more than just your shoulders And you're not going to be able to build something that is large enough to sustain itself into the future with that kind of mentality, that kind of attitude. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, and that actually ties into a little bit about, I know one of the things you're really passionate about, like we could just nerd out on, this could be a probably a four hour podcast easily (laughs) on like how our perspective on leadership and the what's being asked of leaders is shifting right now. And we're in the middle of this paradigm shift. And I see it as I'm like probably too many steps ahead in terms of the way that I'm thinking about this with like arrogance and narcissism. And like, I'm curious about how, what you've been noticing and if you want to speak to that at all. I'm glad that you went there. We've been flirting with it for like the last (laughs) two two topics here that we're touching on. What I see in the world at large, specifically in 
America in a late stage capitalistic society where unfortunately as great as capitalism is and as much has been generated from that, there are not exactly any hardwired safeguards in there to protect the individual or to protect the community at the end of the day. Like if allowed to run unchallenged, which for the most part it kind of has for the last 276 years, my math might be off, but the prioritization of profits over people is just kind of a natural feature of that system if allowed to keep going for so long, you know? And there are nuances to that. I'm not trying to speak like a political science expert here. Like, of course, I'm not trying to blame capitalism for everything, but that's just what I see, right? Now, with the dawn of the information age, with the internet, with the globalized economy, with the globalized labor market, with everybody having the ability to communicate with the world in their pocket and receive information from the world in their pocket, things are starting to change a little bit. The focus in the business sector for the last, you know, 50 years or so since the Drucker days has been very focused on the rugged individual. It's been who's the hyper performer, who's going to save us all, who's the Captain America. And, you know, actually, I want to change that. I don't want to use Captain America because I love Captain America, but (laughs) who's the, the guy, right? Or, I mean, I'll just even say that the guy, because God forbid a woman was the strong hero that picked everything up. Like we we can keep Rosie the Riveter. That's encouraging women to help with the war effort. But God forbid we have an actual strong woman leading. But taking the gender out of it too, it's been focused on Mm. the rugged, hyper-performing individual who's going to sweep in, handle everything, make sure that we're going the right way, fight off all of the enemies and hold the pole on the vision for the entire world and going to bear it all with a smile because they're Superman, damn it. And that's what they do. Mm. That is so far from the actual reality of how things work. That's been the focus of, so how do we judge everybody on the metric that they should be Superman? But when you have an organization full of supermen and superwomen, It's very counterproductive for the actual life and sustainability of that organization. You don't only need superstars. You don't only need superheroes. You need maintainers. You need people who are going to show up every day consistently and reliable. You need trustworthy people. You need those people who may not have the confidence to speak, but have the competence to make sure the organization's staying on the reins and all the I's are getting dotted and the T's are getting crossed. So, what I see in the leadership landscape right now, there the two things are kind of intersecting, right? There's the, the profits over people that's kind of getting shamed in the public space of like, we want more work-life balance. We want more healthcare. We want emphasis on the well-being of the culture, not the well-being of the 1% C-suite elites that make all this money, right? So that's kind of been the shift socially towards more of a social welfare state or social well-being state, not welfare. And at the same time, we're waking up to this idea that it's not all about Superman at the head of the organization. It's about teams. We need to have a team of people who can, instead of expecting one person to be able to cover 
every single area of competency, we have one person specialized that does this and can play nicely with a team of six or seven other people that all have their individual specialties. So that way we can lead from a balanced place. We can lead from a holistic place. We can watch out for where we're going, protect our culture, protect our community from any potential dangers. And at the same time, we have the capacity to take care of ourselves. We have the capacity to prioritize well-being. We have the capacity to prioritize the well-being of our employees, of our community, of the culture that we're looking to bring forward. Because it's not about profits in the short run. It's about long-term sustainability. And that's the shift that I'm starting to see in the leadership landscape today. The paradigm shift, if you would. It's so cool knowing you going through like being so embedded or embedded in the research right now because I sort of disconnected when I left sort of left my official IO position I kind of disconnected from that stuff but I'm as you're speaking I'm reflecting on like what I was learning in graduate school and it's these concepts were what was interesting was like these concepts were there like my experience was like they're there I think actually the first don't quote me on this as I say something into a record, literal recorded line that will be published <laughs> for the world to listen. But I need to look it up. But I think like job satisfaction, I think was first studied in like the late 70s. Like it was the mm-hmm. first time that it was like, hey, we think we should probably look at whether our workers are, are like, okay, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, are they happy, you know? And then I remember it's like the way that it was sort of talked about was sort of like, hey, having a workforce that is happy and healthy and feels connected and seen and supported is important because it actually impacts profits. But it was almost seen as more of more of like a, I feel like oftentimes the way that it was talked about was it's like, this is important, but it's not like make or break yet. Like mm-hmm. it was sort of like emerging. But the thing I've sort of seen over the course of the last few years is with quiet quitting, with like mm-hmm. the levels of disengagement, with people just like the mass exodus from the workforce. It's like, it's not just, a stylistic thing anymore of like, oh, these are these are people-centered leaders. And like, that's nice. That's a people-centered leader. And that's useful to know about what their leadership style is. It's mm-hmm. like, no, no, people are actually unwilling to be with anything. But the thing that you're talking about, like, they're like, I would rather start my own business. I'd rather leave. I'd rather go find a company that does prioritize these things. And mm-hmm. that the tolerance for the kind of like command and control you're asking me to be Superman model is like getting actively rooted out. Like it's not just, oh, that's not as efficient as it could be. It's like, no, no, like this is no longer, we're no longer down with this. And it's like getting rooted out. Yeah, 100%. And this is a perfect opportunity to kind of bridge into that spiritual sense that we connect over as well. It's like, I can understand why up until the late 80s, the 70s, when job satisfaction started being studied for the first time, I can totally understand why it was an option at that point. As a society, as a species, we were operating from a place of survivability. We were still learning how this world works. We were still very much under threat, you know, and maybe not physical threat of danger and violence, although in many parts of the world, that still is a very sad reality. But there was the constant threat of not being able to put food on the table. There was, you know, famine, death, job loss. Like those things were, it was so essential to maintain the nuclear family, to maintain survivability for your family, your kids, 
generations later, it was, I need to secure our bottom line. I need to make sure I'm holding down this job. I need to make sure that I'm putting food on the table. That was just where we were at as a species. There was not an abundance of opportunity that we see today with the internet, with the global market, the global economy, like we have woken up to an entire universe of opportunities now, not just tangibly and financially, but like spiritually and socially as well. And like this kind of ties into like, and I don't know what your beliefs are or anything like that, but I know human design, you're a pretty big student of. Yeah. Oh, that's very spiritual. You can go out, you can just finish whatever you were going to say, open to whatever you're going to say. We're kind of, we're evolving as a species, as the bottom line. Like we're moving from this place of survivability into a place of abundance and thriving. And that's kind of like, that's the natural progression of how we've secured our bottom line as a species. Like impoverishedness, homelessness, hunger is still a problem in America, but compared to the history of forever, the humans have been alive, we are experiencing the most comfortable, the most economically prosperous, and the most conducive for overall well-being of human life, society that we've ever had. And because of that level of comfort, because of that level of having our basic needs met in a sustainable, across-the-board kind of way, we're evolving into these higher levels of communication these higher levels of thinking about life, these higher levels of being able to operate in the world. So in the 70s, that wasn't really there. Mm -hmm. Job satisfaction was just another metric to be tracked for the sake of generating profits and productivity. Now it's a necessity because there is a world of opportunity. There is an entire universe out there. Someone can make more money on a YouTube channel than they could working 80 hours a week. Granted, that's an outlier. That's a small percentage of people, but it's possible. And because of that opportunity, you're right. It's no longer an option to prioritize well-being. It's no longer an option to not prioritize your employees' well-being and their desires and their growth trajectory and what's important to them. And quickly to tie it into human design, it's like um, Ra foresaw that there was going to be this paradigm shift from the Ajna awareness into a solar plexus awareness or a splenic awareness into a solar plexus awareness, so into a place of emotional residence, into a place of being solar able plexus. to connect with each other emotionally. And that really, like, if, even if you think about like Maslow's hierarchy and needs, like that's the, where we're progressing as a species. And in short of there being a new cataclysmic event that takes us back thousands of years into, you know, technological sticks and stone era, like that's where we're going to continue to grow as a species into a place where emotions are prioritized. Mental well-being is prioritized. It's no longer about like, do you have a roof over your head? Do you have food in your body? Like, do you have a place to sleep? Okay, you're good. Next person. Like now it's a place like, okay, are you depressed? Are you Mm. ambitious? Are you able to hold the idea of growth for your life? Are you mentally and emotionally stable? Are you able to connect with other people on an intimate and vulnerable level? Like those are nuanced tweaks And if you're living from a place of survivability, they're practically irrelevant. But if you're Mm -hmm. looking to optimize, you're looking to thrive, you're looking to evolve, you're looking to ascend, those are essential road or those are essential steps on the pathway to enlightenment. Yeah. 
Oh my God. Well, I, I feel like there are a couple of things here that are also really important to point out because one is like, I think the thing that's really important to bottom line and what you're saying is like, you're not saying that poverty doesn't exist anymore. You're not saying that like, like people are actively still like actively struggling and wealth disparity in America is absolutely a thing. And it's like, I, the thing I was thinking about as you were talking was actually how we functionally like don't have a middle class anymore. Like mm-hmm. not really, like there's like pretty much high, very, very wealthy. And then there's like very, very destitute. And I'm a little bit out of my lane here, but it's like, I think having that loss of stability in the middle, right, is, I mean, to a degree forcing people out, right? It's like, if you're sort of in this position where it's like, you're in a job that you're really not thrilled about and you're not being taken care of and you can replace your income easily, like coaching, online marketing, digital marketing, like becoming a consultant, like mm-hmm. owning your own business. Like there's sort of this I mean, mass exodus. Even to take the high level performance out of there, Uber, DoorDash, Airbnb, like there are tangible ways that the average person with very little high level marketing or marketable skills can replace their income. Like, mm-hmm. anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to take you off here. <laughs> no, it's okay. But but it's like, these thoughts haven't like fully coalesced yet, but it's like, I can hear my dad's voice in my head for some reason right now about how it's like one of the big things that shifted after the 70s is like also the nuclear family shifted. And it's like, I feel like our connection to each other eroded. Mm -hmm. And so you see these huge disparities in wealth and like people who are really, really struggling and like being massively disconnected from it. So it's like the people, there is sort of this disproportionate number of people who are like, I have the flexibility to sit and wonder about my soul's purpose. And then simultaneously, you have so many people who are struggling. And it's like part of the... I think I would argue that I think part of the solution is actually a renewed sense of connection to oneness, is a renewed Mm. sense of connection to to the fact that the person who is unhoused and struggling is like, there is no separation. They are you, you are them. There is no judgment. And so it's actually like this thing that we're seeing it's something that we're going to see, I think, in organizations and in leadership and in exactly what you're talking about. But it's also like what we need to move into to start actively taking care of each other and yeah. actively like, yeah, I just felt like that was important to put in. It wasn't like a fully fleshed out thought. But... No, 100%. Thank you for bringing that up because you're right. On a spiritual soul level, whether on whatever, as long as you're anything above, I mean, even that. I was going to say anything above atheism, if you're open to spirituality in any sense, like there is a spiritual collective conscious underneath it. But even atheism, like at a certain level, we are all made of the same molecules. We are all comprised of the same carbon-based organic matter. And there is a collective field of energy that we all interact with, whether you want to believe that that's spiritual, whether it's God, whether it's the universe, whether it's predetermined or not. You can debate the semantics of your spiritual flavor all day, but at the end of the day, the actual facts of it is that we are all living in a collective reality. We are living in a collective field, an energy field, and the separation between you and me is way less than what I can perceive with my five senses. Jesse, for you, in terms of this space that you see everybody evolving or us evolving into collectively, what do you see being asked of our leaders? Like, what is the new model that you're sort of downloading? 
that is a moving target. And <laughs> um, that's been the primary focus of my research and the work that I am doing academically right now. We're living through the shift right now. We're not on either side. We are still very much in this fertile and yet frustrating middle ground where the old ways of hyperperformance, rigid metrics, prioritization of profits and bottom line and investor, whatever, financials. The prioritization of the old way of being is still very much at the head of most people's long-term business strategies. And nothing changes without something changing. Um, so the labor market reacting with their, the individual employees responding to that through quiet quitting, through opening up new organizations, through prioritizing flexibility of schedule. And they are forcing the old guard of leadership to adjust to these new age principles that we're stepping into. The responsibility of leadership during the change is to awaken, really, is to be open to these new concepts and not hold so dearly and so not have a stranglehold on the existing way of doing things. Because as leaders, you need to be adaptable. You need to be able to see change coming and then ride that wave in a graceful way that maintains the structure of your organization, that keeps as many people on the boat as possible. So like if, if you're on a ship, right, and you're navigating through a storm and you're like, we just got to get to the other side, we just got to get to the other side. It's like the mast might break, people may fall overboard, but at the end of the day, as the captain, it's your job to make sure the ship stays afloat and you take as many people and as much resources and take on as little damage as possible while navigating through that storm. And then on the other side of the storm, you look at it and say, okay, there's a different way that we can do things now so that we don't lose our mast next time. Like, what kind of engineering changes do we have to make to our vessel? What kind of personnel changes do we have to make to the way that we do things? Like, you need to be able to see the challenge coming as a leader, respond to it with all of your capacity, with all of your competency, bringing in as many experts as you can to give you advice on the subject to manage that change gracefully. And then on the other side, adapt your organizational standard operating procedures to make sure that the next time a storm like that comes, you're prepared. You know what to do. You've learned your lessons. The thing I really want to zoom in on that you just said too, was that it's like, there are all of these things, it's like standard operating procedures and like, how are, are you like getting the learning from the change and being able to like prepare yourself to be kind of storm ready for the next time the storm hits. And mm -hmm. like the first thing you said that is so important that I feel like everybody friggin' steps over <laughs> is that it's like, are you doing your own work first? Yeah. I, as you were talking, I got really present to, it's like so many of the conversations I'm having right now with leaders, but also with people who like own their own businesses and are just like want coaching or like in my containers and aren't ne don't necessarily, I, are they're not necessarily like leading an organization. They're not founders or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, in like the traditional corporate sense. Although I would argue that everybody's a leader. Like that's actually one of the shifts that we need to make as a society. But there, I had yet to meet someone who isn't feeling this inner tension of mm -hmm. like, there's the way that I was even before COVID. There was the way that I was showing up in the world. There was a particular way that I moved through in a way that I was being 
that it's not that it's bad, but it's just not true anymore. And it's like, there's sort of this new thing that's moving, this new way of being for so many people that's moving in and that having that, I mean, of course they're feeling this because I coach and like I do personal change work, but it's like, it's not just what naturally comes up in coaching. It's like, I think a lot of people are feeling a microcosm of this inside of themselves in terms of like, what are you releasing and what are you calling in and being in that space when the thing that you're calling in hasn't fully taken shape yet. Mm. And it's like, and how do you support yourself in that space and also check your feet on the things that we inevitably do as humans where we hold on to the old way of being. So to a degree, it's easy to go lead a company from managing control. Like <laughs> that is a well-worn path. We have lots of models. We have mm-hmm. lots of, it's like even people who deal with like imposter syndrome, right? And they look, they're like, oh yeah, I just need to like fake it until I make it and act like I know what the fuck I'm doing. And it's and, like- And you can justify staying in your position following that model for a long time. A like long you, time. You point to it and be like, look, I'm hitting all the metrics. I'm doing all the things. Like you can't fire me. I have job security. I'm, I'm excelling. Yeah. But internally, you're coping in a way. Like that's, you know, to your point, and there's something important about that that I learned in the Marine Corps that I want to double back to, but just for a second here. Yeah, like something that I always emphasize in my coaching as well is like, you can't lead others if you're not leading yourself in an authentic way, in a sustainable way. Like you can fake it till you make it in the short run, of course. And there's a limit there. You're going to plateau and you're going to run into some issues on that plateau when the limit of your competency and capacity meets what you're expecting of yourself and what you're expecting of your team. Like it's not going to work out for you in the long run. Something that was always emphasized in the Marine Corps from the first day that you step on the yellow footprints in boot camp, even though you're tired and worn and haven't eaten, haven't slept, and you're getting screamed at by a bunch of grown men, drill instructors. Like it's, it's a stressful time. It's designed to be a stressful time. And the first thing that they instill to you is that everybody is a leader from the bottom of the barrel recruit. Who's not even, you're not even life at that point. You're not allowed to use your name. You have to refer to yourself in the third person. They dehumanize you completely to get you to assimilate to a community mindset instead of an individual mindset. It's extreme, but that's the Marine Corps, man. Like that's what it's meant to be. Even though they completely dehumanize you to assimilate you into their reality, they still emphasize that you may not be a human worthy of a name, but you're sure as fuck a leader. And you better show up as one. You better take responsibility as one because that's what's required for you to be a functioning member of this assimilated community reality. So that's something that's kind of very much impressed on you. Like (laughs) you're sleep deprived, you're starving, you're working out every day, you're going to sleep late, you're waking up super early and they have you screaming all of these ditties of like 14 leadership principles are like know yourself and seek self-improvement, know your Marines and look out for their welfare. Like you're just yelling these things in a collective sense over and over and over again. Even if they don't sink in as concepts in your mind, they're ingrained in like, they're pretty much imprinted on your soul. At that yeah, that's point. programming. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like this, this is how the Marine Corps works. It's they program, they hardwire that the community, the collective is more important than the individual. And in order for you to show up as a functioning member of the community and collective, you need to know yourself. You need to 
seek self-improvement. You need to know your Marines, look out for their welfare. You need to take charge. You need to take responsibility for your, there's a lot of other principles, but yeah. So that's something that's, that definitely influenced my work in the world from my experience in the Marine Corps and something that I think a lot of leaders in the business world could definitely learn a thing or two from. Whoa. How does that part impact how you think about leadership now? Because it's like the thing I hear in there that's so powerful is this like, is humility. Mm -hmm. It's humility and it's collective mindset and it's team. And then I'm also curious about, I don't, I'm thinking of this client I had once who was in obviously keeping everything confidential, but was in like military services and had like a pretty, that was like very, very, very big for this client. And, and so much of what we talked about was like the role of self, Mm -hmm. right. And like reintroducing that into your leadership. How do you think about that? Like, how does that, so in terms of like your identity and like your needs as a leader and things like that, has that reintegrated at all for you? Or for you, is it still like, I'm curious about what reconciling that has looked like. You're talking about like personal needs, right? Like taking care of yourself and not overly sacrificing. Yeah. Like I'm thinking about, about how it's like so much of the programming that you got that was Mm. beautiful and needed and important in the Marines. And that was sort of like part of the lifeblood of the leadership philosophy that was there was like service, right? And yeah. like selflessness and selfless mm-hmm. service to a degree. Well, so what is the role that self plays now I, for you? I understand. I understand yeah. the question a little better now. It was a rough transition, to be honest with you. And honestly, this is in my work that I've done with some veterans and the veterans that I know and people who I keep in touch in, this is a, a big point of depression. This is a big point of difficulty in transitioning. In the military, you're programmed for service. You are literally programmed to serve the country. And like, whether it's physical, idealistic, mental, whatever it is, whether you came in to the military service with this idealistic notion that I'm going to serve and protect, or I'm, you know, God, country, core, like all the propaganda thing, whether you came in with that or not, chances are you're leaving with some sense of, civil obligation of duty to your country, duty to your organization. And in the Marine Corps, you know, the mission is to preserve the life of country and protect against all enemies, foreign and domestic, right? So when you're serving a high calling like that, something that is necessary for the survivability of the country, it makes sense. When you're working at Dunkin' Donuts and you're on your third call-in shift, working overextended hours and not sleeping at night because your entire ethos is sacrifice for the good of the mission, it's not the same. It doesn't translate. And not only does it not translate, but the organization doesn't treat it as the same way. So in the Marine Corps, you know, or in the military in general, you have some of the best health care that's available. You have your housing is secured. You're always taken care of. Your survivability is provided for. It is insured. Your mental health is prioritized. Granted, there's still a lot of advancements that need to come in the field of mental health and the way that we take care of our active duty and veteran members. And it's available. Like I had to have back surgery at 23 because I had a tumor growing on my pelvis and it was taken care of like that. I got to see, I mean, not like that. I had to advocate for myself and see a bunch of people and it was a year long process. But the point was it it got handled with no cost out of pocket, 
no medical bills that are going to be looming over me for the rest of my life. Like my well-being, as soon as it was seen as compromised, was prioritized because I was government property. I was an essential part of the mission being accomplished. In the civilian sector, in the business world, many veterans go to their work. They approach their job with that same kind of dedication. And I did that as well, going into the construction field, working as a union job, I always saw mission accomplishment as above all else, including my physical and mental well-being. The problem with living from a place of self-sacrifice in the civilian sector is that you don't have those same safeguards. You don't have an entire organization bent on leadership taking care of every single person. You don't have structures of accountability and regular check-ins, making sure people are doing well financially, making sure people are doing well in their marriages, making sure that there are resources available for you to be managing the stress on the back end. There's no system of accountability in the business world to make sure that leaders are actually prioritizing the well-being of the people in their charge. In the military, that's ingrained in the culture. It's natural. It's second nature. It is inseparable from the prioritization of the mission is the prioritization of the well-being of the Marines in your charge. The business world doesn't give a shit most of the time about that. There are some unicorn organizations out there that'll prioritize and, you know, like we're learning as a collective. We're learning to adapt those things in the business world. But coming in to the business world with the idea that you're sacrificing for God country core, but in reality, you're just building some rich dude's second summer home in the Hamptons, like that mission is not worth sacrificing your well-being for. And that's the adjustment that a lot of veterans struggle with because we are taught that our body, you know, it's (laughs) something, a ditty, a mantra that we live by when we're in the field in the Marine Corps is weapon gear body. So you take care of your weapon first and foremost, because that's your connection to being able to live being able to defend yourself, being able to, you know, operate and protect your brothers and sisters next to you. Take care of your rifle. Make sure it's clean. Make sure it's functioning. Make sure you're checking it. Make sure it's locked up, making sure nothing happens to it. After that, your gear. What's going on with your equipment? What's going on with, you know, your Humvees, your uniforms, your standards of grooming and everything like that? Like your gear is the next priority after everything. Because if that, if your gear breaks, you're kind of up shit's creek without a paddle. After you've taken care of your weapon, after you've taken care of your gear, then it's time to take care of your body. Which, I mean, if you say that to someone in the wellness space in the civilian sector, they would be like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) But if you're in a hostile environment and your survivability depends on your ability to lean on the person to your left and right, to fight back when you're attacked, to make sure that you're moving forward towards the objective. Like that's the hierarchy of needs right there. Your body is adaptable. A weapon system is not. If your rifle jams or breaks or it's stolen, you're not going to do anything. You're dead in the water. Unfortunately, sometimes literally. Mm. But if your leg breaks, if you have a sprain, if you're hungry, if you're dehydrated, like the body can push through those things temporarily to make sure that you survive to see another day. 
that's why physical training and physical conditioning and like all of these forced marches and staying up all night to fire watch, like all those things, the stress inoculation of training is so important because it builds your body up to be able to bear that load, to be able to carry that forward. And then of course, on the back end, when you come back, you have to go through rigorous medical screenings and tests and, you know, you may qualify for disability. You may be getting a paycheck every month for the rest of your life because of the sacrifices you made at 18 years old that compromised your body's integrity. We have systems on the back end. We have structures set up as imperfect as they are to take care of those sacrifices. If you're doing the same thing to dig a trench, to make sure you're getting people's espresso out at the right time at Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, like that there isn't the same care for the individual that there is in a military setting. So it doesn't justify those sacrifices, even though it may be used to, like it's muscle memory for the veteran at that point to prioritize the mission, prioritize their weapon gear, and then their body on the back end. But the world doesn't have a system of caring for the individuals on that level. Does that make sense? It does. Well, and it's so interesting because as I'm listening to you, I'm like, I'm just reflecting and I'm like, it's not just my, my military client who has this kind of conditioning. I mean, obviously it's way more potent if you've been in the military, like what you just described is it's above and beyond assimilation or even training. It's, it's like, (laughs) it's intentional brainwashing. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I was almost going to say indoctrination, but that has a negative connotation. It's like, it's probably, it's as strong as your upbringing as like the way that you were up brought up, if not stronger, it's probably meant Mm -hmm. to override a lot of those things because it has to, like it has to for what you were doing. And it's like, I'm thinking about so many people I've talked to in the corporate space who are overworked and burnt out and exhausted. And it's like, when we get to the bottom of it, it's like, there's sort of a, the belief might not be quite like what you're talking about, where it's like the the mission is more important than me, but there's a, there's that self-sacrifice is like, is hardwired or is kind of like, is imprinted in some way for a lot of us. And it's not nearly as intense as if you were a veteran, like really want to emphasize that. But it's like, even without that, it's like really friggin' hard to unwire and be like, actually, there's this whole paradigm shift of, oh, if I'm taken care of and my needs are met and I've got me, I do better work. Imagine Mm -hmm. that. And that is, well, and especially for women who are taught to self-sacrifice, whatever. We have a lot, there's yeah. like potentially another conversation about like about gender and, and sexism and all that. But yeah. but it's also not just women. Men get that too. Men get that too in terms of like sacrifice everything so that you can bring home the paycheck and take care of your family. Like it's yeah. the same. And to bring it back to what we were talking about in terms of survivability, like these are biological impulses that we evolved with. Like sacrificing for the good of the community is how we have survived as a social species. It's our force multiplier as human beings. Like we're not the strongest, we're not the fastest, we are potentially the smartest, but the way that we've evolved to create civilization, to create culture, to create societies is by prioritizing the community over ourselves. Men go off to war, they die to protect the community, they fight the wolves in the wilderness, Women sacrifice their dreams, their ambitions. They preserve the household. They take care of children, which is something other than themselves. And like like you said, gender roles, we could split hairs all day. But at the end of the day, sacrifice is required for progress to some extent. Mm-hmm. So 
sacrifice has meant a very big, lofty thing for the history of humanity. It used to mean up to and including your life and limb. Now we're in this place of where we talked about where we're no longer in a survivability conversation. We are by far the dominant species on this planet. We have mastered to the extent that, I mean, I can see our environment and natural threats to our life and our well-being, like up to and including acts of God, like tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes. Like we are conquering any natural predator or unnatural predator that we have on this planet. So we're no longer in a conversation about survivability. We're in a conversation about sustainability. We're in a conversation around how do we prevent our own behavior from taking us out? Ah, yeah. There we so, go. That was a, that's an important distinction. Yeah. Cause the enemies are internal now. I mean, they're, they're also external, like the, the floods and hurricanes and all that stuff still exists. Yes. And the structures that we've created are way bigger threats. The ambitions that we have are way bigger threats to our survivability as a species now than any other outside threat. That's a really important distinction because as I was, as you were describing it, I was like, I can just hear in my head, like the, like, what about climate change? Like, what about poverty? What about, and it's like, but the thing is, I think, oh, that's what I meant to say earlier. I lost it, but now it's back. We're also living in a time where there's more than enough wealth to actually feed everybody. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. there's, more, we have enough food, we have enough wealth. We have like, there is actually more than enough for everybody. The problems that we have is because of like the way that we are with each other and the way that we're making, we're leading and making decisions. And mm -hmm. we ended up on a, this was like a side road that was like super juicy. So we stayed here, but where we started was, it was like the way of being that's getting cleared out and like, what is the new thing? And I know you said it's a moving target. And I know that it, I'm like, you're researching it. It's maybe going to be part of your dissertation. So you have research. Yeah. I'm, I mean, so I'm technically in an undergraduate program. Um, oh, right. So it's right, not right. technically a dissertation, but it's essentially a dissertation. So yeah, like your, th it's like your thesis. Yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. So, but regardless, like maybe including what you've read, like, what do you already know? what would you hypothesize <laughs> is like, is going to be really emphasized and most important. And yeah, like how do we get there? Yeah. Before I touch on that, something important that you just said, we have more than enough resources, right? Mm -hmm. To feed everybody, to make sure that everybody's taken care of and prioritized. Like that's the role of leadership right there. To identify the inefficiencies in where those resources are going, to redirect resources to those who are dispossessed by the system or whatever system. Leaders have a responsibility to make sure we all get through the storm together. No man gets left behind. No woman gets left behind. Like that's a, a staple of the Marine Corps and something that I'll carry with me until the day that I die. If we don't all cross the finish line together, then I failed as a leader or the leadership structure failed as a whole. And that's not to say that you should sacrifice yourself to try and save everybody, but that is the goal. That's the mission, to make sure we all get there together and we're all taken care of along the way. So with that, my thesis, my hypothesis, what I'm working on is kind of like a meta-analysis in a way. Like I'm looking at all of these isolated research studies, all of these things that identify, like to your point, the well-being of the employee, the job satisfaction, the great 
awakening, if you want to call it the quiet quitting, all of these subtle tweaks that are being studied individually of, you know, whether they are being identified as symptoms of something bigger that no one really knows what it is. We're just all kind of like riding this wave together. My goal with my research is to look at all of those factors or as many as I can to the point where I hit information saturation and identify trends, identify categories, and then weight those categories and say, okay, what's most important for the sustainability and survivability of an organization? And not just the C-suite, not just the profitability of investors, not just the well-being of employees, not just the production level and making sure that we're hitting our sales goals, all of it. What are the most important things for a 21st century organization operating in our current global economy with our current globalized labor force to move into the future in a sustainable and successful way? What is it? What's important? And how do we measure it? Then my goal is to identify some form of assessment where we can then measure existing organizations, see how they're doing what they're doing, and influence in certain ways in order to bring them into that zone of sustainable growth. Mm. To be completely honest with you, I don't even know if it's possible. There's a lot of variables. There's a lot of things to look at. And the more that I learn, it just seems like the more there is to study. And that doesn't mean that it's not worth looking into. Well, what I love about what you're talking about is it's like, it goes full circle from where we started in this conversation, where like when you were younger, the thing that you cared about was keeping everybody together, like Mm. bringing everybody along with you. In the Mm. military, you learned about the importance of team and having bringing everyone along with you. And it's mm-hmm. like the reconceptualization of your success as an organization from being a success of individuals or bottom lines to collective health yeah, and how you conceptualize that and how you measure it in a really specific way. And I was super excited when I was texting you yesterday. I was like, for everyone listening, I was like, Jesse, what do you want to talk about tomorrow? This is how I prefer for, prepare for podcasts. It's it's not it's, <laughs> we're 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 flowy around here, and I'm really committed to like ease and simplicity in this one area. But it was so cool to hear how you're thinking about this and how you're thinking about researching it because it's it lines up exactly with like the conversations that I've been having with people who are working with leaders and organizations who are sort of doing this thing. Like I've had this experience too of sort of like I'm seeing this thing. There's a paradigm shift. What got us here is not going to get us there. We're going mm-hmm. in a new... Th- and it's not just like as the basic... that What got you here won't get you there has been a saying for a really long time. And it's people over profits has not been... That's I totally get that that's not new. But there's like... There's a difference right now in the way that it seems to be showing up in organizations and a lower tolerance for anything that's not that. And getting clearer on... What does it actually mean for a leader to be able to navigate through this and create something new and step into this new way of being is like the conversation that everybody is in right now. Mm-hmm. And we've noticed, it's interesting, like the conversations I've had, I have a very large Excel spreadsheet right now where I'm doing qualitative coding on all of the, on like the, what people have like told me they're seeing. 
which I'd be I'd be happy to share with you. But I would love to cross-reference it with my very large Excel <laughs> spreadsheet of qualitative coding. <laughs> it's not a huge end size. Like it's not a huge, oh my God, everybody's listening. They're like, oh my God, yawn. What are they talking about? No, but uh, I'm nerding out really hard right now. It's not a huge sample, but it's interesting, like the similarity and the things that are coming up and a lot of the things you've already mentioned have been really big so far. Do you want me to tell you? I don't want to like grab... Do you want to know? I So like some of them, Let's a lot there. of them are... It's like actually being connected, not just connected in the way like at the top of the call saying, hey, how's everybody doing? Like actually knowing what's going on in each other's lives and then the vulnerability that comes with that of being willing to say when you're in a leadership position, like what's actually going on for you. Not performative vulnerability, which I'm great at, I'm great at performative (laughs) vulnerability. I can perform vulnerability all day. But like Mm -hmm. saying the thing that's really true, like, hey, like sometimes a podcast interviews like make me really nervous and I'm really scared that I'm going to let everybody down who's listening. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was the most vulnerable thing I could say in this moment, but it's like what's really true for you and speaking your truth and allowing yourself to be seen. Understanding that your organization and that your leadership, it's not just of the people who are in your space, it's actually you're you're a global player and there's an impact on the collective and you're part of a much larger system. Doing your own work first, which you mentioned, like an understanding that the change starts with you and that if you're getting a result out here, that there's an opportunity to look inward first versus offsetting or shifting blame or looking, you know, Bypassing like in some other way. Yeah, that's the next emotional awareness, right? Like not bypassing challenging conversations, not bypassing the muck and the challenge and the the messiness that can come mm-hmm. through leadership and relationship and growth and like all of these things. DEIB, diversity, equity, and inclusion, like having an yeah. eye on, does everybody have space to be their whole, full whole selves? And how mm-hmm. can I lead with that first? Particularly if you're not a person of color or... Part of a historic marginalized group. Yeah. Yeah. Like that you to a degree are going first in that conversation. And that's not in the sense of centering yourself, but like are willing to sort of do an even deeper dive and do like really carry that, like carry what's needed for you. Let's see. What else? What else am I missing? Emotional bypassing. Did I miss anything? What do you think? I mean, yes, there's a, there's a <laughs> lot more. There's an infinite... Uh, pool here. Like I said, the the more data I look at, the more I discover that there's more data to be read. But those are very important ones that are very high visibility right now. As you're talking, though, something that's coming up for me is the importance of stewarding this information responsibly, right? So I'm all about dismantling the patriarchy. Let me just throw that out there. Like a bunch of rich old white men who've had a, a fuck ton of money for the history of forever making the decisions for everybody makes zero sense. And we get into a conversation around not throwing away the baby with the bathwater here. So what this, what I really want, my goal with my research, my goal with my training, my goal with all of the work that I'm doing and the conversations that I'm having is not to usher in this new era of influencers and unchecked sources and complete and utter chaos, which is a real potential threat that we are facing. You know, it's like cancel culture is a thing, right? And it's the same representation of a totalitarian state that an oppressive patriarchy is. 
Like we can't go full pendulum swing into the other end of the spectrum and throw away all supportive structures for a civilized society. It's just not going to work. It's going to bring us right back into the dark ages. It's going to bring us right back into the Roman empire towards the end of its lifestyle. Like if you look at history, if you look at our species, like hyper regimented societies are usually met by this swing into chaos which is then no better to sustain life than the oppressive structure they rebelled from. Yeah, the it's actually the worse. Villain. It's actually worse because it leaves you open to outside threat. You're no longer secure in a sense that you can be taken out by another oppressive country and put under their oppressive regime. Or you're in a threat of being completely destabilized in terms of your financials of your country. You know, if people can't buy food then what was the good of your revolution in the first place? So something that I see as a trend, like I said, that pendulum swing, and what I really want to do is like, this is about reformation. This is about adaptation. This is about responsibility. It's not about, I mean, destruction is a part of creation, yes. And do we really want to rebuild an entire thing from the ground up? Or do we want to look and say, hey, we've got a really good thing going here. And for the first time in human history, we have a country that's dedicated to adaptation and growth from the ground up. So do we want to use and exercise our rights as sovereign citizens to reform, to elect, to train, to educate, to change to do things differently in a way that creates a society where we can all be in our fullest expression and safe and secure and provided for instead yeah. of choosing one or the other. It's like, okay, yeah, I want my expression. I want to be able to do whatever I want. I want freedom. But if I'm out in the wilderness, like how many of your listeners or have you ever gone camping? Like, have you ever tried to it. live in the woods for 30 days without running water or heat? Like, I'm not a I'm not a camper man. I always joke whenever I start dating someone, I'm like, if you surprise me with a fucking camping trip. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for, for anyone who wants to dismantle the patriarchy and feels that on a core level, we need to destroy all of the structures of American government before we can move forward. I want to invite you to go live in the wilderness for 30 days. And tell me if you think that that's a sustainable way to run a society. Oh, this is interesting. Like, <laughs> well, this is one of the places where we might disagree slightly. I like, I that. in like a core way, understand what you're saying and agree with you. And it's, it's well, the thing that I'm thinking of also is like growth happens in spirals, right? And I also think that I really believe that this is part of like where I think my faith comes in, right? My spirituality that I really actually believe that everything is divine, including the like dissolution and like the total fucking chaos that happens in the midst of change. And yeah. I actually think that some of the process for many people is actually spending some time in. So like when change, when I've seen change happen on an individual level and on a team level, one of the things that often can happen is like, we start with a quote unquote problem. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's say it's like super command and control, very controlled and directive leadership and like not much room for humanity. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's like there's a reactive response to that where it's like there's a swing to like, wow, fuck this. And it's like, well, I'm just going to show up in my full emotional expression and you're going to have to fucking be with it. And it's mm -hmm. like 
we also see that inside of ourselves, right? Some people will show up like way in control and like, and, uh, domination and like dominating themselves and like massive discipline and, and right. Like running like 10 miles a day to reach their goals. And like, I mean, never we can just call cars. it toxic masculine. Like that's we a very just... hyper-masculine if you would like that's. Yeah. And hyper-masculine, like in, in terms mm-hmm. of like that, like dominance based like paradigm. And so for me, I actually think that that swing to the opposite side can be perfect in exactly what is needed and a divine and important part of the process. If have you ever like you know Kali and Hinduism? Are you familiar with Kali at all? No. So like I've been going down this rabbit hole of like Kali energy and Hinduism and how it's like and y'all for those who practice Hinduism I want to be incredibly respectful of how I talk about this but but Kali is like the goddess of death and rebirth and destruction and yeah. it's like knowing when to use divine rage to speak truth to power and dissolve shit and chaos absolutely ensues in the midst of that. And it's a powerful force. It's one of the reasons why rage in many ways is like so completely like quelled and squished down, like, because it creates change very, very quickly and it can feel very, very scary for power structures. And it's like, that is an important and potent force. And that pendulum swing sometimes is what's needed to create long-term change. But what I hear you saying that I agree, I like fundamentally agree with and really want a bottom line is like, we don't end up in a pendulum. Like that's not the end point. Like there's a, and there's an opportunity through partnership of these two paradigms and through actual Mm -hmm. connection and being able to understand that actually the, and meet in the middle and kind of come from that inherent connection that we all share as humans that will allow us to actually learn from each other and create something new. And so to allow in in equal parts for like old paradigms and people who subscribe to old paradigms to allow new, new things in to pull you towards the future, also to look back towards what worked, Mm -hmm. also to look backwards towards what we learned and like not to throw, as you said, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that that, to your point, is something that in many cases is missing. Okay. That was a lot of words. No, that that was perfect. That was exactly what needed to be said. And something that came up for me in your share, like a hundred percent, I want to agree with you Mm -hmm. there. And like, Mm -hmm. there isn't a disagreement here. Yeah, Um, there isn't. Okay. (laughs) There, there is a difference though on the emphasis of the individual experience versus the collective experience and the organizational experience. It is necessary for an individual to go through those fires of rage and chaos in order to reach their full potential and to dance with that polarity, so to speak. And to your point, like that's the opportunity for partnership. That's the opportunity for a team. That's the opportunity for the community to hold that chaos in a surrounding structure. Because when we dictate the direction of society on the chaos of the individual experience alone, that's when things start to break down. That's when the tracks go or the wheels go off the track, so to speak. And that's the leadership responsibility is to hold the container of the organization, to hold the masculine, quote unquote, the riverbanks of the situation in a a loving and gentle way, in a nurturing way. So that when that chaos, rage, internal experience settles down into something that's softer, into something that's emotional, into something like sadness, despair, like the things that come on the tail end of that kind of emotional wave, like lessons can be learned from that. Things can be incorporated into a system 
instead of the system no longer being existing and we have to start over from ground zero. Like, so that's what I see as the benefit of polarity. It's like, we don't need to be hyper-regimented. We don't need to be hyper-masculine and dominating and totalitarian in our thinking. And we don't need to allow the chaos of creation and the chaos of potential to completely absorb everything as well. Like there's an importance to that polarity. There's an evolutionary significance to that polarity. I'm so glad you just said that because also as you said that, something like solidified for me in terms of like, this is one of the reasons why in leadership, like if you're, when you're in a leadership position, it's actually being willing to hold, right? Like to hold space for that process Mm -hmm. from a place of like, trust in the process and groundedness in yourself is so important because if you haven't, like, if you just see anger and a lot of emotion happening on an individual level, right? It's like, oh God, whoa, like we need to fix this. Otherwise it will, yeah, like it will burn it down from that place because you're, now you're opposing it. Now you're trying to like quell it or squish it or make it go away, which it's just going to meet you back in equal measure. Whereas if you've done the thing that you were talking about in terms of like going inward, and have sort of cultivated this ability as a leader inside of yourself to be like, oh, I'm not scared of that because I've met that inside of myself. Mm -hmm. Like I've been with that pendulum swing, which is also one of the reasons why it's like being able to be with both yin and yang or masculine and feminine. And it's like, even if you're someone who identifies as a, as a man who's leading or someone who identifies as a woman who's leading, it's like being- Or anything in between. Or anything, thank you, or anything in between or non-binary or any of that. And like being able to hold space for both of these energies so that, because it will show up on your team, it will show up in the collective. And if it shows up and you haven't met that part of yourself, it's really easy to get all jacked up and be like, oh, it this is going to shit. The ship is going down. Yeah. And whichever side of the spectrum you were on on that one, if you're not willing to recognize the internal polarity within yourself, if you're not able to sit with that in a wise and mature way, it's going to sabotage your behavior. Like if you're a a masculine identifying individual and you lead from a place of discipline and regiment and performance and blah, 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 and you experience difficult emotions in the world, or you have someone on your team. So, because as a leader, it's not only about yourself. Like it starts from leading yourself. Yes. But ideally leaders enact their influence and direction in the world to other people. So if you're a really regimented, very masculine person, like that's great. In fact, the current market celebrates that. Like we base all of our performance metrics off of that. Like, good for you, man. You're great. Keep going. If you experience someone on your team that has a bit of emotional reactivity, you're not going to be able to handle that. You don't know what bucket to put that in. You can't witness it in any sense of the word. So you you dissociate from it. You write it off as the other. You write it off as separate from yourself. You disconnect from your team member and you invalidate any potential information that they could be sharing with you by doing that. And you also sabotage any chance of retaining a close personal relationship with that person and caring about them, which is a crux of being able to lead someone is caring personally for what they have going on. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you are a very feminine identifying individual, if you honor your emotions 100% of the way, 
and you prioritize authentic emotional expression over everything else, you may exist in an incredibly volatile state. And that's, you know, that's the nature of emotions. They're not exactly based on logic. It's based on things that we're not fully aware of. And if you're prioritizing authentic emotional expression, like good for you, I'm sure that you are way more in tune with your intuition. You're way more in flow with the world than the majority of people who are spent domineering and dissociating from their body. And if you view any kind of structure that attempts to guide that emotional experience as an oppressive structure, as something that is to be rebelled against, then like it's hard to build anything from that state. It's hard to have anything be sustainable coming from that lens. And, you know, demonizing the other end of the pole for just being what they are is not a sustainable way to create something. It's not a sustainable way to connect with people. It's not a sustainable way to lead in essence. Well, and even and even inside of yourself, right? Because it's like, it, well, and it's, it's so important when we're talking about, sometimes I forget to lay planks. I'm like, my that's the one of the big feedback, pieces of feedback that I get sometimes is that I'm like thinking and then, but these energies of masculine and feminine or yin and yang, right? It's like the feminine, which is like more flow-based and intuitive and it can feel chaotic to the untrained eye. And then like structure, which tends to be more quote masculine or yang, which there's a dominance of in the world in general, because historically it's just been prioritized. They both exist inside of us, regardless of which gender we identify as. And even 100%. if you're non-binary or some, and it flows, right? Like mm-hmm. there's going to be a day, there are going to be days where, you know, I felt more like, oh, I'm like, oh, I'm like real grounded in my masculine right now. And other days where I'm like way in my feminine and it, it can change day to day in terms of the way that we express and being able to sort of have these sorts of conversations where we're, we hold space for, like you have healed your relationship with all of the forms of yourself, all of the pieces of yourself sets the foundation to be able to be in relationship with another person and whatever is showing up there. And Mm -hmm. then exponentially increasing from there in terms of your team, in terms of your culture, so that when these things emerge in team dynamics and cultures, which they will, you can be what you can be with it. And it's be as you're able to hold space for both. That's when like the creative power is just unbelievable because it's like you have this amazing creativity of the yin. You have like like birth it, like the energy of like birth and creation, and and then you also have the riverbanks. Like it's not just water that's sort of like flowing everywhere. Like it's water yeah. that's in a river and is can actually go and create something. Yeah. So yeah. I read a book one time that kind of boiled it down to, you know, we've been dancing on this, the polarity, masculine, feminine, yin, yang. The masculine is representative of provision and focused awareness. One point of focus, mission accomplishment, move on to the next thing. The feminine is more tailored for creation and dispersed awareness, being able to pay attention to multiple things at the same time, being able to juggle and balance having multiple priorities, right? And that, the balance between those two aspects within self, the balance of those two aspects within a culture, within an organization, the balance of those two aspects within human species as a whole is what creates the zone of sustainable growth. We can't have creation without the chaos, and we can't have order and sustainability 
without the threat of domination and hyper-rigidity. So those are the two extremes that exist at the poles. And we have this entire middle ground to play with as leaders, to shepherd responsibly as leaders, instead of hyper-fixating on one or the other. Woo! <laughs> this is going to be one I'm going to have to go back and listen to when, it's, when, 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 we're done, when we're done. There's like so much good stuff in here. Well, and Jesse, one of the ways I've been rounding out these conversations is by doing everyone who's listened to me is like, she says the same thing every time. I call them rapid-ish fire questions just to kind of like get your thinking on a couple of things. And is now a good time to segue to that? Is there anything else you want to touch on? We're probably sitting at like the two hour mark. So yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> like like you said in the beginning, we can probably keep going for like four hours, but I want to be courteous <laughs> to your listeners and courteous to your time. So let's uh, rapid-ish questions. We also have, we have gone for like, I think that probably our longest conversation has been around the four hour mark. It was like you and Lindsay and yeah, I just have a, just got a flash of a memory of me being like, okay, I have to go to sleep now. Uh, so, <laughs> So, um, well, okay. So, well, and Jesse, you've been kind of, you've kind of been dancing around it a little bit already, but I'm curious, like, what is your personal definition of leadership? My personal definition of leadership, being able to hear and having the courage to respond to a higher calling and creating and maintaining relationships in pursuit of that higher calling while ensuring that the relationship stays mutually beneficial. I love that. And it's like that piece that you said around, it's like bringing everyone along with you feels like such a huge part of who you are and what you bring. And I can hear that in it. Yeah. I do want to name that that is also my limitation as a leader. Mm. Ensuring that everybody gets across the finish line together because that's not always possible. And with that being a priority for me, I believe that my voice is necessary in the leadership conversation, but it is by no means the only one. And other perspectives are completely necessary to challenge my ideology. Like I play an essential role in a team of making sure everyone's taken care of, and it's not the only role. Like making sure we're moving towards the target, making sure we're moving towards accomplishment sometimes needs to do so without taking everybody's needs into consideration. And that's where the team dynamic comes into play, right? Because I'm not the best at keeping projects on task. I'll admit that. Like a limitation of mine is making sure that everybody's taken care of. And that sometimes impedes progress. But sometimes it's necessary to impede progress. And sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. I hear you. You know, you and I have that in common. Well, and, and for you, Jesse, so you've done quite like you're so super aware, like the awareness that you have like around, even like in what you just said, I know you've done quite a bit, like you have really committed to your own growth and work and in your journey so far, what's been the most impactful or transformative modality or experience or tool? Like if you could sing the praises of any one thing, what would it be in this conversation? Wow. Finding a willingness to face your own shadows whatever avenue that that comes to you in. And if you're anything like me, it's going to have to come to you in quite a few avenues because you're going to be pretty unwilling to listen and learn the lesson the first few times it hits you upside the head. <laughs> you know, whether that's 
military training, whether it's a spiritual awakening through plant medicine, whether it's hitting rock bottom and having to pull your life together out of desperation or battling with demons like addiction or, you know, I've definitely pushed the envelope on this life in quite a few arenas and been thankfully checked by the universe in some loving, if not difficult ways that have not yet been fatal. So cultivating the willingness to face your shit and to see it as part of you, because in that lies your strength. It could also be your destruction, but you know, there's a, the dragon always guards treasure. And if you're willing to face it, then within that is something that you can use and some gold, <laughs> hopefully. The dragon always guards treasure. I've never heard that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fantasy nerd. And on top <laughs> of that, on top of that, I'm a huge student of Jung and archetypal analysis and, you know, Campbell and the hero's journey and all that stuff and how these stories that we've repeated since time in memoriam actually teach us foundational spiritual lessons to be practiced and embodied. Yeah. What's your favorite? fantasy i'm not in that world so i'm gonna like butcher the words but is it like uh like world like is it lord of the rings is it like what's your what's your jam nail on the head tolkien the works of tolkien man i am i've always been obsessed with lord of the rings since i was a little kid and i've recently like within within the last couple of years become very obsessed with the rest of tolkien's works and um i mean i've I've also been in ministry for a couple of years, and I would say at this point, I know way more about the origins of Arda and the universe surrounding Middle Earth than I do about, you know, the spiritual creation of our own world. So, <laughs> um, uh, or whatever, you know, creation theology you prescribe to. Um, but yeah, I, I love the works of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings are my favorite movies growing up. Like, so good. Oh my God. I'm so glad I asked that question. Um, what for you, Jesse, is like one quality that you wish to instill in our next generation of leaders? Mm-hmm. Just light, casual mm-hmm. questions in this section. Just I, little... I see what you mean by rapid-ish. <laughs> 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 hmm. Unconditional humility. I arrived at that through um, one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite books, uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great. He's a polymath, a well-known researcher, qualitative, quantitative researcher in the field of IO. He outlines the two sides of what he calls level five leadership is simultaneously possessing an indomitable will to succeed and unconditional humility to face yourself and your limitations. So I think that there's plenty, if not an excess of indomitable will in the world today. Usually you don't have to train people how to have an indomitable will. But if we can start to incorporate the other side of the coin of unconditional humility and willingness to connect vulnerably into the equation, I think that that would outline or that would forecast a a very healthy future for our leaders. We should have like a part two on a conversation about arrogance and narcissism because it's it's like 
there's little like sprinklings of it everywhere. Well, yeah. And it's like, that's making me think about how it's like the, so many people who have an indomitable will also have an unwillingness to look at their, it's like, just keep running as fast as you can and don't look at any, at any of the things that kind of hold you back. And it's like, no, no. To your point about shadows, slow down, look. I have to, what was the name of the author again? Jim Collins. Jim Collins, okay. The, the book that I got that from is uh, Good to Great. Good to Great by Jim Collins. All right, we'll put it in the show notes. Jesse, is there any other wisdom you'd like to offer listeners before we sign off? Love yourself. <laughs> I know that sounds really heady and out there, but like, God, if more people learn to just unconditionally love themselves and embrace what they're going through with compassion, it's been a huge part of my journey, of my coming home to myself. And I believe that I'm of the belief that if more people learned to unconditionally love themselves, regardless of what was going on in the world or what they were producing or not producing, the long-term benefit of that individual or their contribution to society would be beyond compare. Jesse, I know this has been such an, this has been a really impactful conversation, like even just being, sitting and being in it, let alone listening to it. And I'm sure that there will be people who would love to have more access to you or reach out. Like how, where can people find more of you? Yeah, let's see. The the best place, best place would be face-to-face, honestly. (laughs) Find me in the wild. But um, if for those of you that may be unable to do that, I understand it may be difficult. I'm one in about 8 billion. The conscious leader underscore is my Instagram handle. I'm going to be revisiting. I also have my own podcast, uh, Lead in the Moment. And I'm working on refocusing my efforts towards being more active and attentive on social media and in my own platforms. So shoot me a DM, give me a follow, give me a couple of hearts and likes. It has definitely become more of a fan page for my pets than anything else. Um, but, <laughs> but as I'm wrapping up my dissertation and presentations this year and uh, focusing less on client acquisition, I'm looking to pour more energy into my social media platforms and my podcast. So that would be the best place. Cool. Jesse, thank you so much for spending your Friday afternoon with me. Yeah, of course. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And um, I love the work that you're doing, Lauren. As always, an amazing conversation. So many stones unturned. And if there's anything that you are doing in the future that you would like or could if you think of me, you'd like my insight, my opinion on things, I'm always honored to share it. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>